Hey, it's Dr. Angles. Welcome to Advocate. Please be advised that the subject matter that we will be discussing may be disturbing to some listeners. And a big shout out to my friend Corey Hendricks for allowing me to sample his song, Invocatio. You can now download his song from Apple Music, Spotify, and more. Go check him out, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, Advocate family, it's Dr. Angles and Dr. Larman. We're here today to talk about one. Today is my book launch day. I don't know if you know, Dr. Larman. Yeah, my book, The Power of Truth, The Life of Louis Arvatulo and the Legacy of the Rape Kit is now available for purchase. Today is its publication date. Yes, I know. It's super exciting. Um, Amazon? Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it from my publisher's direct website, um, Genius Books Publishing. Hopefully soon, Barnes and Nobles and any other place that you would get books. Also, we're trying for an audio version too at some point. For those who don't know, the book is about my grandfather who invented the rape kit. He was a Chicago police sergeant and the chief microanalyst of the crime lab. And he worked on some very notorious serial killer cases and it's all about his life his career and also as a grandfather and how that shaped me into becoming a forensic psychologist and why I came to do what I do and eventually it led to you Dr. Larman (laughs) I know I know we we met in prison we were sallies at one point (laughs) works there I know to be clear to be clear we worked there (laughs) office mate sallies Yes. Yeah. We call our office mates sullies. It's kind of like prison humor. Similar to officers, we sometimes need to use humor as a way of coping with a lot of the sensitivities we deal with in that environment because it's very unpredictable. It's very negative. It can be hostile, but we have each other. Here we are. So on that note, today's episode is going to be focused on rape in prison and in a California correctional system, we call rape a uh, PREA, P-R-E-A, and it's an acronym for Prison Rape Elimination Act. And it was enacted because of the prevalence of sexual assaults in correctional systems. And Dr. Larman, you worked for the California correctional system longer than I have. What do you think is the prevalence rate of that? Oh, boy. I started in 2007. And we had training on Priya, but it was once a year. Mm-hmm. And it was always taken seriously. So I don't want anyone to think that it was never an issue. But between 2007 and today, we started having more and more and more training. Mm-hmm. Started having more and more paperwork to determine the Priya situation. Mental health started being called in because mental health really wasn't as important in the decision-making as important in the treatment. They didn't really think about treatment back in 2007 like they do now. Unsurprisingly. Mental health is called right away to determine suicidality and and mental Trauma, yeah. But I don't recall in 2007, eight, nine, 10, and if it was, we rarely got called. Now we would get calls often. Yeah. Yeah. When I started, it was 2014. And yeah, we had training on Priya once a year. And to be clear, our training in the California correctional system, when it's once a year, we're talking about something called block training. 
which includes all departments. So that's not just mental health, but it's custody, it's medical, it's dental. Is it OTs as well? It's clerical staff? No. Yeah. yeah, everyone? Okay, yeah, so everybody. And the reason for that is because we are supposed to take allegations of rape in prison very seriously, as you should in any allegation of rape, whether it's in, in prison or not. But there are some fundamental issues when addressing sexual assault in prison that are similar in nature to those that are outside of the institution, but also there are some nuances that occur there that don't within the community. So Dr. Larman and I, we worked at a men's correctional facility. It was a maximum security facility. It was only men. So any allegations of PREA were same-sex allegations, which have some differences in how they're managed and how they're handled. And you're time there, Dr. Larman, how many PREA evaluations or calls or allegations do you estimate that you might have had to handle? Probably had at least one a month. Oh, wow. They're considered a crisis call. So when I was on the crisis calendar, I probably received one, maybe once a month or so. Okay. And assess suicidality to talk to them about what happened. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I never worked in the crisis bed. I obviously did answer crisis calls, but I didn't really get a whole lot of PREA calls, but I did have a lot of post-PREA situations where there is a substantiated claim of rape in prison. They will move the victim to another institution for safety reasons and also for mental health reasons. So when I was working with you and we, when we were sellies, in fact, I had a couple of them that were moved to our yard from a different prison post-assault. And so my treatment was just trauma recovery and addressing that. But we have a particular standard of how we manage these. So when we do get an allegation of rape from any inmate, we are required to report it immediately. And if I recall correctly, we do it to the watch commander. And then we also notify the crisis line. And then what was your role in the crisis bed when you would address the calls? Things changed. Clinician would go out and assess them. And then they would send them up to us and we would have to assess them again. But things changed after that. And it was just the clinician doing all the assessing, then consulting, then sending them up. Once they were sent up, they weren't reassessed again right then. They were assessed daily but not 24 hours later. Okay. But I so, think I received more calls during the time of transition on the yards. When in 2016, I believe it was 2017, when on the same yard, when we were sellies, they started moving a lot of inmates around and they moved a lot of inmates that were loving being at LAC and didn't want to leave. And some that wanted to get out very badly, but weren't leaving. So during that transition time where they cleared the yard and brought in a lot of inmates from other institutions, there seemed to be more accusations going on around that time. Because once we do our stuff, custody is the one that verifies whether they're substantiated substantiated or not. Yeah, we have a we have a detective unit called the investigative services unit and their job is to come in and essentially investigate the crime because this is an allegation of a crime, not just a trauma 
that we respond to, but a crime. And so it's handled as such. Our investigative services unit comes in, they interview the, the victim, they interview the alleged perpetrator and gather intelligence. They gather evidence to determine whether or not there's a substantiated claim. The victim also, incidentally, undergoes a sexual assault evidence collection process, which is something my, my grandfather invented. And that is also analyzed and used as part of the data. But sometime in, I want to say that same time frame when things were changing, there was another change that happened where they were introducing a harm reduction model. So much like in the streets, there's a needle exchange for people if they're addicted to IV drug use. And so what they would do is say, bring your dirty needles, drop them off in exchange for clean ones. And the goal was to reduce the harm of spreading infectious diseases, et cetera, by reusing needles. And around that same time, Dr. Larman, correct me if I'm wrong, they introduced a harm reduction model in the prison system in which they were then providing condoms in every housing unit so that even though sexual intercourse and sexual contact is strictly prohibited in prison. such thing as consent in prison, no matter what. Right. It's a crime regardless. Right. So even though, let's say, two sellies are in a romantic relationship and they both are consenting to having sexual relations, the prison views that as a crime regardless because there's no allowance for sexual relations whatsoever. But they know that it's very prevalent in correctional systems. Inmates do engage in sexual activity with one another. So they introduced this harm reduction model where they would put free condoms so inmates could take them with the hopes that if they use this, it'll reduce the spread of diseases. But that also poses another problem because it sends a message of, yes, this is illegal, you should not be doing this, but if you are to do it, use this. And if there is an allegation of rape and a condom is used, that affects the evidence collection process to substantiate that sexual assault. So what, are your, what do you think about that when that was implemented? On the surface, I understand it. Mm -hmm. hey, don't want you we know you're doing something illegal but we don't want you to die in the meantime of a sexually transmitted disease or give it to your loved ones oh yeah because some of these inmates were still getting conjugal visits with their wives or when they're getting released they're going home to their wives or their girlfriends etc and so the spread is there too we know it's happening we don't want it to happen and if we catch you you're gonna get in trouble you're gonna so get in trouble <laughs> You know, we're kind of promoting it safely, but sneaky. Right. So if you want to do it, just be careful because right. if you caught, you're in trouble. Right. So I've, I had mixed feelings about it too, just like you, because there's benefits and there's cons to harm reduction models. But in the grand scheme of things, the objective is to reduce the harm that their behaviors cause towards others in our community because we know that we can't stop it fully, just like we can't stop drug use fully. We try to do what we can to at least prevent the consequences towards others. But what they didn't consider, at least to my understanding, is we do house serial rapists at the prison that we work at. These things do happen. So if now you're giving free condoms to them and you've got a predator in the housing unit 
and they use the condom in the act of a sexually violent crime, then how are we able to really address that assault if the evidence is limited in that case? I mean, you're going to have evidence that something happened. Right. I'm trying to think of all the different scenarios. People end up in other people's cells. The cell doors are open sometimes. So you can't for sure say, well, that was the celly, obviously. Right. So you're stuck with maybe something happened or it looks like something happened, but what do you do unless you caught it in the act? If there's no DNA evidence. If there's no DNA evidence, exactly. Also too, if you look at it like that, that explains a lot as to why maybe these crimes are so unreported or underreported in prison. Because if somebody was sexually assaulted and their assaulter used a condom and they reported it, if it's a crime to have any kind of sexual activity in prison and you're reporting this crime that happened to you, but you can't prove that it wasn't consensual, does that then make the victim also punished in some way? I think that's why a lot of them don't report. Because I know. It was consensual between two sallies, but then they have a falling out. That happens in prison all the time. Yes, love triangles are a thing. They have a falling out, and now suddenly the other guy's claiming it was rape. Now, when you have an enemy in prison you don't have an enemy just right there that one person is not your enemy your enemies become everybody who is at all surrounded by this inmate so like associated with them anything that's associated and if this inmate's in a gang mm-hmm. then it's that entire gang and it's not just that prison it's, it's all prison in the system because word gets around to other prisons yes it does <laughs> yeah, we're talking right now they know in other prisons somehow some way that things are going on exactly so now do you say something did this really happen these inmates have to decide what is the worst that can happen to me if i don't say anything i was just raped i'll live with that no one else has to know but right. if i say something Even if the guy is punished, my time for the rest of the time, and even if I'm out on the streets, could then again also be jeopardized. Absolutely. Something or do I not? Absolutely. And if word gets out, which it will, that you reported that you were a victim of a sexual assault in prison, there's a whole other stigma that comes with that amongst the inmate population. So there's a lot more variables that go into reporting rape in prison. Like you said, there's falling outs that happen all the time. I've had a lot of inmates that were on my caseload who were in a romantic relationship with their cellmate. And then the cellmate decided, I don't really want to be with you anymore. I'm into this other person. And so they'll allege that they've been victimized by that cellie just out of vindication and spite for having a broken heart. And so it becomes a very difficult crime for our internal services unit to really investigate because that does happen often. And how much of this is vindication and how much of this is reality. Even with DNA, they can say, hey, it was consensual. Again, no consensual in prison. Right. But when you use the condom and you take that DNA away, now you have an inmate making an allegation against another inmate. There's no DNA the perpetrator now whether they did it or not is also getting stigmatized Mm -hmm. if they really didn't do it 
they have to go through the whole interview process. They have to be examined as well. They have to determine whether this perpetrator really was the perpetrator. If the allegation was unfounded, now you've made an enemy, they'll do it so that way they can't be in certain prisons. So they, they can only go to this prison because right. it's an enemy is at this prison. Exactly. There's a lot of nuances when you talk about prison. And then there are, are also inmates that will allege that somebody was a, a sexually violent person to them just to get that person removed from the yard for different reasons, whether it's political, whether it's emotional, whether it's a love triangle. I feel like our investigative services unit, when they have to respond to an allegation of a sexual crime in prison, have a lot more layers that they have to go through to substantiate. And I think that also creates a potential complacency when they come to these certain, yeah. certain investigations where there are times that they may overlook a true victim of rape because of the amount of times that they come across allegations that are unfounded. Not that the ones that, that say that, they're, that they've been raped right away aren't telling the truth by any means, but I know that I did, and I would imagine you did too, that during a session, you would have an inmate that just seemed a little different that day. That, or you noticed it before the session in the buildings and stuff, yeah. and you talk to them, there's something different about them. And the more you talk to them, finally it comes out. Yep. But by then there is no evidence because they've showered, they've endured it and kind of gone on. Right. So days have passed, sometimes more than days have passed. So there's no physical evidence, even if a condom wasn't used. Right. And just like, just like women or men in the community, the longer they wait to report the crime, the more they're victim shamed or victim blamed. In some way, people discredit them because they waited, but they're not considering all of the factors that go into their decision to tell their story. It's their story to tell if they want to tell it and when they want to tell it. That's another thing that is common as well in prison is that there's an added stigmatism where it's a man, it's a male victim of sexual violence in a male-dominated institution. The whole environment, because yeah. more of the offices are male. Um, I right. think clinicians and nurses, most in every department seems to be male. Oh, and OTs. It's very male-dominated. It's very male-dominated, and there's a certain type of tone in prison with males about strength and masculinity, being a soldier. So any form of perceived weakness by anyone around you, whether it's other inmates or if it's custody, that follows you, that, that puts them at a more vulnerable risk. Most people, I don't know if most people realize this or not, but a sex crime is not a, a sexually charged crime. It's more of power and dominance, mm -hmm. and submissiveness. Mm -hmm. When men rape a woman, it's not because they love her mm -hmm. and they want to have sex with her. It's power over that woman. It's mm -hmm. dominating over that woman. Power, control, exactly. So when it comes to prison and men, it's the same thing. It's not about romance and love. They're truly a sex crime. It's about dominance. It's about putting that inmate in his place. 
with gangs, one of the correctional counselor was telling me that the gangs have almost, um, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, or if you're the low man on the chain and want to make it up the chain, or if you are initiated or screwed up in any way, part of the gang ritual, I guess would be, would they had this saying, and I'm not going to say the whole saying, but it's blood on my knife or, and then a private part. Uh. So it's basically what they're saying is if you don't stab someone, or you don't do something to someone and you come back here, you will either get stabbed yourself, shanked on the yard, or you'll get raped. I will rape you. And the rape is not because I'm in love with you. Not because I'm sexually. Yeah. It's because how do I prove my dominance over you? What is the, uh, pretty much the worst thing you could do to someone without killing them, hopefully, but to make you humiliated, to mm-hmm. make you see that submissive, I, understand your place, exactly. is and going so, to be rape or sexual assault. Mm-hmm. They won't call it rape, but it's going to be, I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you. Right. Out your mind, and you best believe you will walk that line. And if you don't, I will continue to do what I'm doing. Right. You have to be of use or you're useless. And when you're useless, we discard you. But we know that there are gangs in prison. This is not something that is new to anybody. And if it is, surprise, there's gangs in prison. They're based on race, generally speaking. So with with this particular saying that the correctional counselor who, for those who don't know, a correctional counselor is a custody officer who works as a counselor, not in a therapeutic way, but more of a, I'm working up your file. I'm helping you get into some programs. We'll, they'll look up transfers if it's needed. They organize court legal proceedings that are ongoing. That's their job. They don't do anything mental health wise, but this correctional counselor telling you this saying, was that particular to one particular race or was it for all? No, he didn't make it particular to one race. He so it said- sounds like it's a general thing. Yeah. Okay. The interesting thing is to all the inmates, you are gay if you have sex with another man and they say overtly that they don't like gays. Covertly, they will do this, but they call it, you know, gay for the state. It's not gay because it's just to put this person in his place. Right. It's just for dominance. It's almost like they recognize that rape is not a sexual thing. By saying, you know, hey, I'm not doing this for sex with this man. I'm doing it for dominance and power and control. Right. And I'm given the green light by the people in charge, by the shot callers, by the higher ups to do this. So it's acceptable to my gang, which means I'm not going to be viewed differently. I'm going to be viewed as somebody who they can rely on if I exert this power and control. Even the highest person at the prison, the shot caller for that gang at the prison will do the same thing down the line. So if I'm doing it for power and control, you're doing it for power and control. They're doing it for sex because they're gay. Right. We're doing it for power and control because of our position. Right. Our position in the gang, in the system. So because you've had maybe one Priya call a month, how many of those do you think were substantiated as verifiable sexual crimes versus allegations that... We're done out of vindication, spite, whatever. I don't know because I don't know their outcomes. If they weren't on my case. True, they weren't on your case. Yeah. 
So sometimes I would see them and then they would be gone. They would go to a different, either a different crisis bed uh, in a different prison or they'd go to Department of State hospitals. They'd go to the, the state right. hospital. So they, they didn't stay with us, with me long enough. If they were on my caseload, and I did have a couple on my caseload who had had substantiated PREA claims. And that was substantiated by your investigative services unit with evidence that went with it. Okay, so then let's talk about when we were cellies and we were, you were not in the crisis bed and we were working on the same yard. Any of the inmates that allege this to you, of those, how many do you think, based on, like you said, their appearances, their demeanor, their disclosure of the act itself, the emotional fallout, the trauma, et cetera. How many of those that you feel were credible? Boy, that's a hard one. It's a hard one, I know. Because like I said, I, I had guys that came into the prison with a Priya. If they claimed Priya, a lot of times they were sent to a different prison. Right, right. That's how mine was too. A lot of them were, out, were coming to me from another prison, yeah. And the ones that came to me though, I did read and out of the guys that I had on my caseload that had come to me after making allegations, most of them were substantiated. Mm -hmm. and that's why they were in our prison. Some of them did it to get single cell. Yeah, that's another one. That's absolutely common and it's unfortunate and it's sad. And then they would come and they would say, even though it was substantiated back then, wherever they came from and they had single cell, Suddenly, because I would sit in committees and what a custody committee is, is where they decide their housing, where they decide their programs, where they decide. Uh, um, right. That's where the correctional counselor comes into play. Correctional stuff. So yeah. they, they would come to the committee and they would say, I want a Sally. I was like, but you have a Priya, you cannot have a Sally. Oh, well, that was back then. And suddenly their story would change. Mm. So this is where it's also really hard because you can say at the time that it was great they have the the evidence mm -hmm. they talk to the celly they determine the celly got punished you got moved and now years later it's like but you know what we really were just in a spat and it we made up and now we're friends and but yet that person has additional charges on them and so they're ruining their life. I want a Sally though. I'm bored by myself. So <sighs> there's so many little variables that play into these that yes, it can be found credible at the time. And then the story changes where, but now I want a Sally. So it was, it was actually this, not right. that. Also I've had where someone claimed Priya and turned out to be the predator, not. Oh, I've had that, yes. It's like they wanna preemptively report this so that they look as the victim, not the perpetrator in the situation. I would have to say in my six years with the Department of Corrections in California that I've seen probably three very seriously violent PREA allegations, but that were credible and substantiated. When you were, were they on your caseload or crisis call? They were on my caseload. Yeah. You got called for the crisis call when it No, happened. they were transfers. Oh. So okay. they, the, the allegations had already been reported. The investigation is already underway. I didn't have to notify and watch commander or any of that. They were already transferred out and the investigation was done. It was completed, but 
the injuries that they came with, physical and emotional. I had seen some pretty significant. Here we are at Advocate. The whole premise is to start advocating for victims and advocating for testing of evidence collection kits and sexual crimes. And this is a situation that has always boggled my mind because rape kits are used among prisoners in our correctional system, whether it's women or men. We now are giving them ways to prevent DNA evidence in those collections. And there are incidences where allegations are made that are done so with a motive and it's not actually a, a credible situation. So like, what are your thoughts on how that can be reformed in some way? As you're talking, I'm thinking about this is when you have a, a female rape victim, she's ashamed. Mm -hmm. She's afraid of getting blamed, quite often does get blamed. The dress was too short. Why were you walking there? Why were right. you? Oh, I know. It's, it's terrible. So in our society, there's nothing wrong with heterosexual sex. I mean, there's nobody, I think, that would say anything negative about someone having heterosexual sex. Mm -hmm. And so there's already that stigma with rape with the female. Now you have same sex. So there's a stigma there right away to begin with because there's too many people who have issues with homosexuals. Right. So right away and especially in prison. Mm -hmm. So there's that stigma there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Then you have all the little nuances of what is their power play? Is there a power play? Did they want another Sally? Did they get in a fight? And then you have going back to a female being ashamed, a man being ashamed. I know. And in prison, this guy could be in prison for some heinous stuff. This guy could have done really bad things and he's just like a man and got raped. How, how, you know, I'm not gonna tell anybody, I have a reputation. So you have all of these things that go against what really, really happened. Mm -hmm. And then when you do get these allegations and you're trying to collect, if they reported it two weeks later, they reported it a week later, or even a day later, because part of the PREA is the inmate, just like with the rape out on the streets, you gotta keep your same clothes on. Mm -hmm inmate they like put a tarp thing down with the inmate and the inmate has to take his clothes off from top to bottom not touching anything after it's down on the ground they roll everything up then they have to take all the samples so nothing can be cross-contaminated it has mm -hmm. to be very very methodically and if you don't have that opportunity to do that just like on the streets everything kind of gets messed up and it's just my word against their word so I think a big, big, big part in prisons of not getting men to come forward with this is because there's that huge stigma. Right. You let somebody overpower you. Right. You're you six foot four, 300 odd pounds. You were like the shot caller and this happened. You let another man have sex with you. Right. Really? So there's a lot of shame in men. Right. And and if they come forward, even if it's years after the fact, if it was never reported and they tell their clinician, we have to report it. Yes. We have to say, we have to go to our, the watch commander. We have to go to ISU. We have to say, hey, we got this allegation. They're saying it happened years ago. They never reported it. They're reporting it now. Even though they want to work through and process it, they know that by even just talking about it with their clinician, that we are legally mandated to report it in the, the correctional system. So they don't have a safe place. 
it's going to get investigated again because they want to make sure it's the same allegation that was made before and it's not a new allegation that's coming up. So they got to check everything to make sure. So once you mention any kind of rape or any kind of Priya issue to us, it's going to be investigated whether it was yesterday or it was five year, five year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So even after they finally summon the courage to come forward, it still requires that they go through that process, the process that they want to avoid. So a lot of them will just avoid discussing it altogether. One of the things that we've talked about before at Advocate and on my blog, www.advocatefamily.com is that women in the community, if after a sexual assault, if they're not being perceived as being distraught and in distress by the police officer investigating it, their credibility is questioned at that point. And that should not be the case. If that's happening already in the community, imagine, just imagine what's happening in our correctional system when you've got these big guys, baddest, strongest of them all, and they come forward. You think anyone is going to really believe them in that setting? I mean, I know you and I would. You know, you and I both know corrections officers who are like, seriously? Yes. Yes. Or they'll say, I don't care. (laughs) And because it's like, you're, you're, you're a man. You're bigger than I am. How would you let them overpower you? For men, especially talking about rape in a women's prison or sexual assault you're going to be left with less DNA. So how, I don't know how that works. Unless I don't know. Officer or a male that's a uh, staff. Mm-hmm. There's sexual assault between females. I know. Where there won't be any DNA. In the correctional system, it's credibility. Sadly, you're already a criminal. Right. Your credibility is already shattered. Even though you're still a human being, you're serving your time for what you've done, no matter how heinous it is. Your credibility is shot, even if you become a victim. And in a women's prison, if it is a male, a staff. That's frequent. Yeah. I unfortunately know of officers who now have kids with a female. Oh my gosh. One of the officers that, you know, the prison that we've worked at came from a women's prison. And he said, I came from the women's prison because I didn't even feel comfortable having to pat them down and do checks. And he felt uncomfortable. He was like, at any moment, they could make an allegation against me when I'm not even doing anything wrong. I just much rather work with men. And so there's that element too. So I guess there's some reform that needs to be done. I think it is a systemic in the community and in the prison and in the world of rape being the victim's fault. Part of it you can see in sentencing. Yes. Rape that are in for five years. You know, there's people that have done drugs that are in for life and you have right. some rape that's in for five years. And then there's a disparity between race too with the same charges. So you've got someone like Brock Turner who is caught in the act of sexually assaulting unconscious women and a citizen's arrest is done by two heroes riding by on bicycles who saw this and stopped him until the police came. He's arrested and he's given what, five months and got out within like two and is on probation. And it's all because he's an affluent white male who went to a Ivy league school. Well, He's been in shorter than the pandemic has been. I know. That's what I'm saying. And then you've got, if you were to take the same situation and it was not a white male, 
but whether a black man or a Hispanic man or someone mm. of color and they were caught in the act, they would be getting 13 plus years. Especially if the victim was white. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's a systemic problem. It's something that we need to continue talking about, which is the whole purpose of why we're here today. Thank you for being here. Oh, anytime. Uh, anybody listening has any suggestions on how we can address this stigmatism both in and out of prison, let us know. We're happy to answer questions. We can have a Q&A podcast if we need to. And I'm very curious because I have not worked in a woman's prison, how it does work. That's a good point. Yeah. How they handle it there. Has worked in a woman's prison that has any experience with this? I would love to know. Yeah, I would love to know that too. Let's talk about the differences. You triggered something. I was also thinking when you're talking about Brock Turner, there was someone from Stanford. That was Brock Turner, wasn't it? Was it Brock Turner? Yeah. Just wait. So he just now went to prison? No, this was a while ago. Okay, because he's coming up a lot lately. Brock Turner? Yeah, I've been seeing him on a lot of things lately. Oh, he appealed. I think that's what he did. He didn't appeal to get off of the registration or to... Oh, he's the one from Stanford. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is so weird. Yeah, Um, he's appealing. He doesn't think he should have to register. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. No. (laughs) Yeah. Whole other problem. Yeah, I try to stay away from the news as much as I I can. I know. Especially lately. His name lately. So I was thinking, wait, that's that's very similar to the one in Stanford. Okay. Yeah, I believe it's the same one. I'm pretty sure. And then there's the, the three middle school or high school kids that Daisy and I can't remember the other one. Oh, Audrey. Yeah. And she recently took her life. Yeah, I she saw that. At separate times. Oh, and gosh. Those boys got very little time as well. Very little time. No victim should feel that the only way to end the pain and to get justice and to overcome a sexual crime is to take their life. Where reform starts, and I just mentioned this, this is what we're talking about, but I think it's really something to mention twice, is that stigma of rape, you know, victim blaming. There's got to be a paradigm shift in that. And it's men who victim blame, but other women are really bad at victim blaming. Yeah, I think we should talk about that as another podcast idea because it is, it's a very prevalent issue and it's something that's been heavily shown lately with all of the high profile cases that have been coming out. I definitely would love to make a whole episode on victim shaming and hopefully we can spread some awareness. Yeah, there's shaming and blaming. There's both. Yeah, both, right. Um, So deal with that. There's so many pieces to the puzzle that it's not just you take care of this and it'll all go away. Anybody that's listening, look inside yourself too and think, well, if I were to have gotten raped or a female that I know, or even a male, if I knew a male that got raped, most people would say, come on, males can't get raped. Right. I, you know, I've had a lot of people say that very same thing when there's spousal rape. What? A spousal rape? You're married. There's no such thing as rape in a marriage. Oh, yes, there is. No means no whether you're married or not. You are not the property of anybody. In prison, they're also wards of the state. So it's a dependent adult. Having sex, if it's somebody that is not an other inmate, and we know that, sadly. That happens, yep. And that is also a crime because that is having sex with a dependent of the state. Somebody that cannot supposedly protect themselves. So that's a whole other... That's another topic. 
Speaking of, of yes, we do know people. Send us some emails, listeners. We want to know some topic ideas you want to hear from us because we've got a lot to share. (laughs) All right, let's wrap it up. Thanks so much, Dr. Larman. You're very welcome. Anytime. And you can reach us at www.advocatefamily.com. Email is info at advocatefamily.com. Send us with suggestions, topic ideas, questions, anything that you want to hear about. We are happy to cover as long as it's the realm of what our objective is. Thank you. Thank you.